Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Listen then as I read from Hebrews chapter 4. This is what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day of all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today. Saying through David after so long in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take out your Bibles again if you would and turn with me back to the passage Dwight read for us, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll be looking at that for a few moments together this morning. And as we start out, please let me pray for us. Our Father, as we turn now to the Word, I pray that we would do so with fear and trembling, for when you speak, we ought to listen. So help us to listen attentively. Help us to hear what you're saying to us. Help us to respond with obedience and submission, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you've been assigned an extremely difficult task. I want you to imagine that some person who's in a legitimate position of authority over you, he's come to you and he's told you, you need to do something that's going to take you all the way to your limits. So let's say he's come to you and he said, I'm assigning this task to you, 
you need to climb Mount Everest. He's assigned the task. You now have to complete it. Now, you're no outdoorsman, you're no athlete, you're no mountain climber, you have no natural talent, no natural disposition that makes you just the right person, well-suited for this task, but you've got no choice. You just have to do it. You've been called to that task. So what would you do? How would you handle a situation like that? Well, a very good place to begin would be to go out and seek the counsel of someone who's done it before, someone who's already climbed Mount Everest. You might go to that person and you say, you've been there before. Can you tell me what I need to know? What's it like to be in a place where the, the atmosphere is so thin that you can just barely breathe? What's it like to be that high up on the mountain and see your friends turn back and go away? What's it like to be battered by winds and assailed by doubts and to be so sorely tempted to just throw up your hands and quit? Can you tell me what I need to know to prepare myself for this task. That would be a great place to begin. That person's experience, that person's counsel would help you a lot, I'm sure. But I can think of at least one thing that would be even better. Even better would be if that person, you go to that person and he says, I'll tell you all about my experience. I'm glad to do that. But also, why don't I come with you? Why don't you let me be your guide? Because even better than being told the way you must go is being shown the way you must go. Even better than having someone instruct you is having someone accompany you. Well, if you're a Christian, you've repented of your sins as we've done this morning, you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God has called you to a task that is extremely, extremely difficult. God has called you to do something that, that pushes you to the very limits of your ability, to the very edge of your endurance, to the very last measure of your strength. But really, if I'm honest, it pushes you beyond all that. Here's what God calls you to. God calls you to hold fast to the confession you've made. He calls you to remain unwavering in your commitment to His cause to remain unbroken in your hope and unstained in your character and unswayed by temptation and uninterrupted in doing good to other people. That's a heavy challenge. But it's not like that challenge is given to you in some idyllic setting either. You have to endure this, well, or you have to, to do all this while you're enduring a lifetime of tests and trials and sorrows and sufferings and pains and persecutions. So God has called you to do this. You have to do it in a body that gets sick and weary. You have to do it with a mind that gets easily distracted and often distressed. And meanwhile, the, the world around you and the flesh within you and the devil beside you, they're all battling you every single step of the way. They're taunting you and tempting you and tripping you and trying to convince you to turn back. I've never tried, I've never tried to climb Mount Everest, but as far as I know, there's no season where, where Mount Everest just kind of throws out the welcome mat and says, this week only, it's an easy climb. This week only, it's just come and, it, and it's an easy one. And in the same way, there's no season in this life that's just simple, easy, leisurely. There's no path through the Christian life that demands nothing of you. 
And so in light of all that, what I'd like to do this morning is offer some encouragement for weak people who have been called to a difficult task. When I mean weak people, that's you. That's me. We are weak people who have been called to this difficult, this impossible task. And so I'd like to offer some reflections on Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, one little verse from a letter written long ago, but to other weak people, to weak Christians in a very different time and place, Christians who, who are making their way through difficult challenges, Christians who needed some encouragement. The verse says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. With that verse in mind, here's what I'd like you to see as we consider this task God has called you to. I want you to see that Jesus knows your weaknesses. I want you to see that Jesus cares about your weaknesses. And I want you to see that Jesus helps in your weaknesses. What I want you to understand and believe is that in all of life's difficulties, the heart of Jesus Christ is inclined toward you in sympathy. So like that mountain climber, you have someone who cares for you. You have someone who instructs you. And best of all, you have someone who accompanies you. He tells you the way to go. He also shows you the way to go. Because Jesus knows, and Jesus cares, and Jesus helps. So first this, Jesus knows. Jesus knows your weaknesses. The text says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I've said that we're a weak group here. I know you pretty well. I know myself pretty well. I don't think it's offensive to say we're weak. What does it mean that we have weaknesses? Well, certainly it means that we are morally weak. We're prone to sin. We face constant temptations to rebel against God, which is why pretty well every Sunday we begin our service by confessing our sin and receiving God's assurance that He has forgiven us. So we're morally weak. But more than that, we're also physically weak. We are embodied beings, which means we get sick and we get tired. We're prone to illness, and every one of us will eventually die. We're intellectually weak, which means we're limited in our understanding, limited in our understanding of events around us, limited then in in responding to events well. Sometimes we can think we're doing just the right thing, and later we find out we've done just the wrong thing. We're morally weak, physically weak, intellectually weak. We're also emotionally weak. Our minds and hearts grow weary and downcast. Sometimes they're even diseased and afflicted. We are little creatures, and we display a full range of weaknesses. You you go into Home Depot sometime and look at the paint selection there, and there's these paint chips, right? These entire walls of colors of paint chips, just this endless variety, and that's That's like our weaknesses, this complete variety, a total spectrum of ways that we are weak. There's so many, it's hard to know where to even begin as we describe how little and how weak we are. And then all of these weaknesses that we bear, they accompany us through really difficult circumstances. Of course, we, we experience many great joys in this life, but also many deep sorrows. 
We face bodily diseases and mental traumas. We face relational discord. Our friendships are cut off by death. We have children who disobey. We have spouses who betray. We face the fires of persecution. We, sometimes hardest of all, we face the consequences of our own terrible decisions. And as if that's not already hard enough, every sorrow, every pain, and every trial brings with it the temptation to sin. It's so often when we're at our weakest that temptation is strongest. It's so often when we're most broken that sin is what promises. It offers it, I'll make you whole. It's right then, right then that the world entices us and the flesh ensnares us and the devil incites us. Our enemies do not fight fair. They won't let up for a moment even when you're just so broken and distressed. We can't let our guard down for a moment in this life. So we're so weak. Life is so hard. Our enemies are so vicious. But good news, our God is so good. Because it's to weak people, not strong or self-sufficient people, it's to weak people that the Bible gives this beautiful promise, Jesus knows. Jesus knows the facts of your weakness And remarkably, even better, he knows the experience of your weakness. Now, we can be sure that that Jesus knows the facts of our weakness because previous verse, verse 14, we read that Jesus has passed through the heavens. And that means he is reigning over this world. He has authority over all that happens in this world. He sees everything. So Jesus sees your suffering. He knows all about it. He hasn't missed it. He hasn't failed to spot it. Your suffering, your trial, it is before his eyes and it's upon his heart and it's within his mind. He knows. And you can be certain he knows the experience of your suffering as well because of the verse we're looking at this morning. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who is present at the creation of the world, the one who with the word of his power upholds the world, he took on flesh, became human, and entered into this world. See what he did? He laid aside his glory. He became weak. Our God became weak without ceasing to be God. He became man. And as a man, a real flesh and blood man, he faced the sorrows and he faced the temptations and he faced the weaknesses that every human being has to endure. So we can say, he was tempted as we are. The Son of God was tempted as you are. Now, the word tempt can have a couple of different aspects to it. It can refer to the kind of temptation that's intended to cause a person to sin. The kind of temptation that its goal is to get you to act in a way that God forbids or to fail to act in a way that God requires. And we know Jesus faced exactly that kind of temptation. You can probably think of some times from his life when he was faced with the temptation to sin. Like the time he was in the wilderness and Satan came to Jesus and he offered him a path through life that would be so much easier than the one the Father had called him to. Satan came to him essentially and said, just bow before me 
and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. So I'll give you what your Father has promised, but if you take my route, no suffering, no blood, no cross. Why don't you just do it my way? And so tempt can refer to that kind of circumstance, one that's designed to lead you to defy the will of God, lead you to sin. But tempt can also refer to the kind of trial that's designed to help you grow, to help you grow in character, to help you grow in ability. And Jesus faced that kind of trial as well. Early in Hebrews, we're told, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That almost sounds like heresy, doesn't it? Jesus had to be made perfect, right? The founder of their salvation was made perfect through suffering. Now, Jesus had to be made perfect, but not in the sense of reforming His character like you and I do. His character is already perfect. He had to be made perfect in the sense of passing those tests of character, and through those tests, proving that He was faithful, proving that He was unblemished by sin. So, it wasn't enough for Jesus to be perfect. He had to prove He was perfect. And he did that by being weak. And in his weaknesses, passing through all those tests and all those trials and all those temptations that come with weakness. The text says he was tempted in every respect as we are. That doesn't mean he faced every possible temptation a human being can face, but he faced every kind or every category. Jesus was tempted to outright defy the revealed will of God. He was tempted to only partially obey the will of God. He was tempted to twist the Word of God and use it for His own purposes. And then He was tempted by the circumstances of His life. For like you and me, He had a finite, weak body. And it's within that finite, weak body that He endured so much. He endured sorrow and loss. He endured insults and betrayal. He endured physical pain and emotional agony. He was weak. And in those weaknesses, he was tempted to respond poorly, tempted to add sin to sorrow, to add rebellion to his pain. Right? It was when he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. He was weary. It was then that Satan launched his strongest assault. It was when he was already in physical and spiritual agony on the cross that people goaded him, come down from there, come down and save yourself. Of course, there's one great difference between Jesus' temptations and ours, and the author makes it clear. He passed through each and every one of them without sinning. Just imagine that. The Father sent Jesus from the absolute perfection of heaven to just the terrible, ugly mess of this earth. And Jesus did not grumble. He did not complain. People insulted His mother. People charged Him with debauchery. He never once lashed out in unrighteous anger. He faced the scorn of humanity. He faced the wrath of God the Father. He didn't pout. He didn't whine. 
He was betrayed, abandoned, beaten, belittled, bullied, bereaved. Never once did he fail to love God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never once in all of that did he fail to love his neighbor as himself, not for a moment in his entire life. He in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Not one. Now I know some probably wonder at this point, yeah, but could Jesus have actually sinned? Because yes, he was a man, but he was also God. He had a human nature. He also had a divine nature. So could he have actually sinned? Well, it's a little outside the scope of our text this morning, but later on you might want to look up James chapter 1 and see how temptation works. James makes it very clear there. And he says that what temptation does is it takes advantage of evil inner desires. So temptation lures and entices us in ways that appeal to whatever evil desires lurk within. We all have different evil desires that lurk within. That's why you may be tempted by something that doesn't tempt me at all, and vice versa. But it's when those evil desires respond to the temptation that's dangled before it, that's where we sin. So it's not, te- it's not sinful to be tempted but it's our sinful nature that so often makes temptation effective. And so the question we need to ask then is, what evil desires did Jesus have that temptation could latch on to? What evil appetites were lurking in the heart of Jesus that would respond to the devil's bait? Nothing. Of course, he had no evil desire, so there was nothing for sin to attach to. Temptation had no appeal to him, and he would never have given into it. So he was genuinely tempted, but he had no desire to succumb to that temptation. I wonder if you've considered this before, as you think about the, the perfection of Jesus and Jesus being tempted. If Jesus never once sinned in his whole entire life, as we say must be true, it means that he faced the full weight and the full duration of every single temptation. Think about how often you give in to temptation right away. I mean, temptation comes along and just right away you give in. Or maybe you endure for a few minutes or a few hours or a few days. And, you know, you might actually say, it took me two days to give in to that temptation. Praise God, I'm growing in grace. And truly, that can be a, a wonderful thing. But so often the way we get relief from the heavy weight of temptation is just to give in to it, to accept it. Jesus never did. Every single time he was tempted, he endured that temptation all the way until it was lifted. I wonder if you can even imagine that. I don't think we have a category to imagine what it would be like to to face and endure every temptation until it was lifted and not because we just gave in to it and sinned. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand because Jesus was weak and tempted, he knows. He knows what it is to be weak and tempted. He's experienced it himself. He's endured it himself. And that is meant to be very comforting to weak people like you and me. There's so much comfort in understanding Jesus knows what you're going through. Whatever you're going through now, whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever is coming at you in life, Jesus knows. He sees it, so he understands the facts of it. 
but he's also experienced that kind of suffering, that kind of sorrow. So he knows what it is to face the most difficult circumstances, to face the fiercest temptation, to face the most vicious assaults. So as you endure the trials, the difficulties, even the traumas of this life, remember, believe, Jesus knows. But then also believe he does more than know, he cares. It's the second thing we need to see. And I wonder if you notice that the author describes Jesus here as our high priest. There's lots of titles you can use to describe Jesus. Why would he have used high priest here? Well, to answer that all the way, we need to, you know, understand the letter a little bit more. But for our purposes, what we can say is that in this part of the letter, the author is focusing on the way Jesus represents us. In the Old Testament, a high priest would stand between the people and God, and he would be the mediator of their relationship. You might get someone to mediate your marriage. That person stands between husband and wife, and he helps them communicate. It's exactly what the high priest did in the Old Testament. He stood between God and man, God's people. He mediated their relationship. He represented the people before God. He represented God before the people. Well, the author of this letter, he wants to show us that the priesthood and all its sacrifices and all its mediation, it found its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus, who is the ultimate representative between God and man. In verse 14, the writer has said that as our high priest, Jesus has passed through the heavens. So in the Old Testament, the high priest would pass through the curtain. He would go into the Holy, and holy, the holy of Holies, and he would make a, an offering to God there. What we're supposed to see is that Jesus himself has now passed through the heavens. He's entered into the holiest place. He's been our sacrifice. He has been the acceptable offering to God. And so now he sits in heaven. He reigns in glory. And, and thinking about a God who's sitting in heaven and reigning in glory, we might be, be tempted to conclude, well, then he's far off and he's aloof. He's like the king sitting in Buckingham Palace. What good does that do me when he's sitting on his throne way, way off in London? So could it be that because Jesus is transcendent, he's no longer right here before our eyes, that, that maybe he can't be really sympathetic anymore? That because he's reigning over the whole universe, he doesn't really care about a little guy like me. Well, the author has anticipated this. I wonder if you notice that he phrases this verse as a negative instead of a positive. It would have been more efficient. I mean, I'm a writer. I, I can look at this and say, well, I wonder why he did it that way. It would have been more efficient to say, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. It's just normal English, right? We have a high priest who is able to sympathize. He doesn't say that. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So why would he phrase it in the negative like that? I think this is exactly it. He knows that some people will wonder, well, Jesus might know, but does Jesus care? And his response is that, well, just because Jesus has transcended this world, just because he's reigning in glory, you should not take that to mean that he doesn't care for those of us who are within this world. He truly does. And that means that as you endure the realities of your human weakness, as you endure the consequences of your weakness, Jesus cares. Jesus sympathizes with you. He sees and he sympathizes. To sympathize is to feel sorrow or to feel 
pity. It's to care about something rather than be cold or apathetic about it. To be sympathetic is to share an understanding of what another person is going through and to allow yourself to be moved by it. When you're sympathetic, you so love and identify with someone that you suffer with them. You suffer alongside of them. You bear their burdens. You weep with those who weep. You love your neighbor as yourself. If you've ever gone through something, you've gone through something difficult, and you've realized people around you just don't care. That just adds sorrow to your sorrow. Jesus cares. He sympathizes. Sympathy is powerful, and you have the sympathy of Jesus Christ himself. In your sorrows, in your suffering, you have the sympathy of the Son of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a comforting thing? You will never meet a pain or a sorrow and find that Jesus is cold and uncaring. You'll never meet a trial and find that Jesus is aloof. He's unmoved. You'll never meet a temptation in which you cry out for help and he just turns his back on you and he leaves you to face it in your own strength. Think back for a second to the fact that Jesus never sinned in his whole entire life. What does this do for you? Why does this matter? How does this help you in your sorrows and temptations? Well, imagine that you've suffered a terrible tragedy, a terrible loss, and your heart is just shattered and broken. And you call a friend who's endured a similar loss. And he, he rushes to your side and, and, and you say, please tell me what I need to know. Help me. And he says, yeah, you know what? When that happened, I just shook my fist at God and I cursed his name and I turned to the bottle and I drowned my sorrows in alcohol. That, that doesn't help you at all. He's been through it, but he's got nothing to give you. Or you're struggling with a sin and you call a friend and you say, I'm being tempted to sin. I need help. And he says, yeah, I always give in to that sin as well. I can't really give you anything. But in Jesus, in Jesus, you can be certain you have a friend who has faced loss with complete trust and complete confidence in God. A friend who's overcome temptation without wavering for even a moment. You have a friend who can serve as an example of truly how to overcome. Just do what he did. And you can be certain that because he's been there, he cares, he sympathizes. Just think about the fear of death, how afraid we are to face death. You can turn to Jesus who's faced it. He sympathizes with you. He's been there and he's endured it perfectly. We have so much strength, so much comfort in our risen, reigning, tempted, tested, perfect, and proven Savior. So in all of your suffering, in all of your sorrow, in all of your pains, in all of your temptations, in all, all your loneliness, all these, these many manifestations of your human weakness, the brokenness of this world, you can be confident. You have the full sympathy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows and he cares. But of course, sympathy at its best isn't just feeling, it's doing. Sympathy is a feeling that takes form in action. And sure enough, we find that the Jesus who knows and cares also helps. The third thing we need to see is simply Jesus helps. In fact, it's because he knows and because he cares that he helps. Since he knows 
Since he cares, of course he will help. Of course he'll take action. He won't abandon you in your hour of need. Now he'll prove himself most present at the very moment he is most needed. To see that, we'll have to take just the briefest glance into the next verse. Because here's where we start to see the implications of the sympathy of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then. Here's, here's how to act, right? Jesus knows. Jesus cares. What's the call to action for you? Simple. You need to draw near. That's the calling on you. Draw near. Which is a poetic way of telling you essentially to, to pray, to turn to God in prayer and pleading. I wonder if the kids here know the story of Esther from the Bible. It tells about an evil, evil man who had decided that he was going to destroy God's people. He was making it his goal to destroy all of God's chosen people. Esther was the queen at that time. She was Jewish. She was one of God's people. And, and so she realized it was up to her to go to the king and plead, please will you save these people? But there was a problem. There was a rule in that land that no one was allowed to approach the king unless the king had summoned him. You could not go to the king unless the king had said, come to me. And if you did walk into the throne room without being called, two things would happen. One of two things would happen. The king would be holding his scepter, right? That big scepter he would hold. Two things would happen. Either he would do nothing with it, and if that was the case, the guards would take you away and they would right away kill you. That was your consequence for going to the king without being invited. Or he might do something else. When you came to the king, he might hold out the scepter toward you. He might lower it to you. And that meant you can speak. And so Esther and the people, they prayed to God, prayed deeply, and then she walked into the throne room and the king looked at her and he lowered the scepter. And then she could say, oh, please, king, please save me. Please save my people. She could make her petition, her request to the king. And he, he heard her and he answered her and the God's people were saved. That's just such a beautiful picture of something that's true for Christians. Just like Esther approached the, the throne, she approached the throne room of King Ahasuerus and he, he held out that royal scepter to indicate, speak, you can make your petition. If you're a Christian, God's scepter is always held out toward you in that way. You're always welcome to draw near to his throne and to make your request to God, always, at every moment of every day. He's always glad to hear from you. He's always glad to respond because you're his people. You're his. So you have the right to approach God. Imagine that. You don't have to go trembling like Esther, wondering, will he hold that scepter out to me? Will I die? You can go, and you can go freely. No questions asked. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with Jesus, who has saved you and drawn you to himself. You have the privilege of approaching God through Jesus Christ. It's because of what he has accomplished that you can approach God and plead for help. And when you do that, you'll find that God is willing, He's able, He's eager to help. What does God's help look like? It looks like mercy 
and grace, according to verse 16. As you cry out to God in your hour of weakness, He will grant mercy, the kind of mercy that overlooks all the sins that you've committed. Because of His mercy, by His mercy, He takes all your sins, all your transgressions, all your rebellion, and He does not count them against you. I mean, how could He? Because He's counted them all against Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for them. And so you receive mercy that forgives you. And so I just need to ask, have you received that mercy? Have you asked God to forgive your sins, to restore the relationship that's been disrupted because of your sin, your rebellion against Him? These are amazing promises, access to God. God hears from us. He loves to hear from us. He loves to respond. But that's only for Christians. That's a promise only for those who've accepted God's offer of forgiveness, who become reconciled to Him. Whether it's the first time you've come to the throne of grace to ask God to forgive you, or whether it's the millionth time, God is always so much more eager to forgive you than you are to be forgiven. It's His joy. God freely and joyfully distributes mercy in your hour of need. He also distributes grace. Grace that prepares you and equips you to endure your trials by faith. To remain unbroken when tested. To pass through temptation without sin. What does grace do? Well, grace allows you to hold fast to the confession that you've made. To remain true to the Lord. Grace allows you to resist the devil. To crucify the flesh. To remain unspotted by the world. Grace allows you to to bow your knee in submission even when your heart has been broken. Grace allows you to have a song of praise on your lips even when your cheeks are stained with tears. Grace allows you to profess He is the light even when it seems like everything is darkness. And that grace comes to us most prominently in, in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ who's given to dwell within you. When Jesus was here on earth speaking to his disciples, he promised he'd send a helper. Oh, and what a helper he sent to us. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us to guide us, to accompany us from the very first step we take to the very last, from from the base of that mountain all the way to its summit, from the moment of your salvation to the moment you finally stand in God's presence. That moment of victory when finally you've cried your last tear, felt your last pain, faced your last temptation. Jesus knows, Jesus cares, and Jesus helps. So when life reveals your weaknesses, and it will this week in one way or another, remember, Jesus knows. When you're experiencing a a great wave of temptation, and you will this week, believe Jesus cares. When your body is aching, your mind is troubled, your heart is broken, be confident. Jesus helps. He has endured what you're having to endure. He's been tempted in the way you're being tempted. He's held fast to his confession through the highest peaks 
and the lowest valleys. So when you're called to go a way that is very, very difficult, when the calling of God is to ascend your own kind of Mount Everest, when you're called to follow a, a track that's treacherous and steep and unknown, when your mind is troubled or your hands are tempted or your heart is broken, it falls to you now just to pause, think, and look. Look down at that pathway and you'll see Christ's own footprints there. And you'll know that your faithful Savior has already passed that way before you, faithfully, perfectly, without sin. And then you can cry out, cry out for mercy, cry out for grace, and God will grant them because Jesus knows and Jesus cares and Jesus helps. Amen. Amen. Let me pray.